Welcome to Veterans State of Mind. I'm your host, Garen Jones. And um, I'm feeling pretty happy right now. Do you know why I'm feeling pretty happy, guys? Um, I am looking at CombatComeOver.com's website. And um, there's somebody in a bikini. I'm assuming it's not the lads that run it. And, uh, yeah, all I'm going to say is worth heading over to (laughs) CombatComeOver.com and checking it out. I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. They make the most delicious pomade that an infantryman has ever eaten. Apparently, you can also put it in your hair. Um, they're American guys. They make highly offensive pomade for true patriots. I'm a patriot. I feel like I'm more of an American patriot than most fucking Americans out there, to be honest. I feel like, you know, if I could have my citizenship squared away, that'd be nice. And I could come and live in Vegas with my boy Seabass, um, who we miss. And we need to get we need to get him back on the podcast, don't we, really? But yeah, guys, uh, should come back home and check him out. I'm... <laughs> I'm having a hard time concentrating on this, on, on what I'm supposed to be saying, to be honest. I'm going to scroll down past that picture so that stops being um, so distracting. So the good thing about these combat over guys, I was like, they were like, hey, you know, we want to help out on the podcast because we believe what you're doing. I'm like, that's very kind of you, noble, com- noble combat over. And then I was like, what can we do in return? I was like, would you like us to harvest the organs of some of our listeners? I said, don't worry about that, mate. How about just asking your listeners to head over so I come back home over and give them a follow on social media. That's all they're asking. And in return, listeners, you get this podcast, which is made possible by Combat Comb Over. So what are you waiting for? Head over, give them a follow. All right. Today's guest, Colonel Hamish Stephen de Breton Gordon OBE, is a chemical weapons expert. Uh, he was a former British Army officer for 23 years and commanded, um, commanding officer of the UK's Joint uh, Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nutri- Nuclear Regiment. Um, he's been to Iraq, he's been to Afghanistan, he's done all kinds of stuff in Syria. Um, I think he is an absolutely top bloke who has done a lot for saving lives, especially of young children, totally innocent children in Syria. Um, I was very, very impressed with him. He's our first... British Army officer on the podcast, so there you go. We, we. I always thought that the officers wouldn't want to touch us, but there you go. Hamish does, um, and like I said, I'm not surprised, guys. He is such a good bloke. Um, I, I'm really, 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 really impressed um, by this gentleman, and um, I'm looking forward to sharing the episode with you. He has a book out called Chemical Warrior, and we'll talk more about it in the podcast. But I think it's a very important book because, um, as Hamish will go into, it's a kind of a I agree with Hamish that we've really dropped the ball as a nation with Syria. You know, we've let a lot of people suffer there, innocent people suffer, because really as a nation we didn't stand up and do the right thing. And the book's a lot about that and and, and more as well. Um, so I'm really glad to have uh, him on. Um, so, yeah, guys, please give a very warm welcome to Hamish de Breton Gordon. Hamish, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on, mate. Uh, not at all. Thanks very much for having me. I believe in accountability on this podcast, so I'm going to take put my hand up to the listeners um, and tell them that I was very late for today's podcast because um, I didn't check my calendar properly, so I apologise to you that. And I uh, beseech anybody out there that has appointments to check their calendar on a daily basis and don't think that you can remember everything off the top of your head uh, because you can't. Um, Hamish, for you guys um, who are unaware of him, is... Uh, very experienced officer, very experienced chemical weapons um, expert, and he's just written a book called Chemical Warrior. Uh, we're going to be diving into some of the bits of it today. Um, I think, Hamish, you're the first British Army officer that we've had onto the podcast. Um, so w- welcome in that capacity. Um, we've had a lot of uh, we've had a lot of 
bitter lance corporals on here and stuff. So it's good to uh, good to get the other side on. Well, thanks very much. I mean, it's it's a huge honour to be on and to uh, talk about some of the the issues that are all you know very relevant with uh, I think what's going on at the moment. And hopefully, I can give a perspective on on some of the activities and uh, and Syria. I mean, a lot of chums of mine say, you know, what's Syria like? Um, and I try and say, well, if you were in Sangin in sort of 2008 or, or Basra in 2006, it's it's sort of like that all the time. But um, looking forward to having a discussion about these issues. Yeah. I, um, so I was in Basra in 2006 and I would hate to think what that, what that was like with chemical weapons um, on top of everything. Um, I really want to talk about Syria, but I know that there's a lot of young listeners, a lot of aspiring officers listening who will get um, get angry at me on the internet if we don't talk a little bit about your journey into the army. So how, how did you, uh, how did it come about that you ended up um, seeking out a commission and then getting one? Well, I, I come from a, a long, long line of, of military people. Uh, both my grandfathers were, were in the army uh, on my mother's side, my grandfather was a, an army surgeon. Uh, he, he fought throughout the Second World War, was a really uh, imposing figure for me and um, and w- was was part of, I think, why, why I went down that line. I didn't know my father's father, but he, he was in the uh, military as well, the Indian Army, actually. Uh, my own father uh, was in the army. He uh, he joined as a as a soldier in India just after the war. Mm. Um, and then um, uh, I think he, he rose to the rank as sergeant in the Essex Regiment and then was commissioned into the Royal Signals, did 40 years, uh, retired as a colonel some years ago. And his three brothers uh, also were in the um, in the infantry, the Royal Anglians, uh, and, and they all did a full service. So it was sort of imbued, embedded in me, I suppose. And um, I was fortunate, I went to university um, but uh, while there, did uh, did the regimental uh, regular commissions board uh, and got got a commission and joined the Royal Tank Regiment after Sandhurst in 1988. I suppose the question everybody is asking themselves, all the great looking listeners from the infantry, is uh, why did you decide to forsake the old ways of the family and go down the uh, cavalry route? That, that's that's a really good, good question. I think uh, again, it's people that you meet. Um, some of my father's friends were were, were tankies, and um, mm. and I, I remember them discussing with me what to do, what I wanted to do. And as I describe in the book, we we were posted to Bahrain in the Middle East uh, for about three, maybe four years, between the ages of about oh god, three till seven, I think it was. Uh, and I can just you know remember seeing you know tanks and stuff you know charging around, and mm. it it just seemed. Pretty, pretty glamorous. Um, and then when I went through, you know, selection and everything else, you know, tanks seemed to be the thing that appealed to me. Um, and yeah, I just, it's just one of those things. I, I can't really put my finger on it. But uh, as I always say to my infantry mates, you know, I, I spent 23 years, you know, in the army and did, did lots of exercises and, and operations on tanks. And I, I was never uncomfortable. And, um, I, I listened to you know some of my infantry. But I remember in Canada, you know, listening to uh, you know, an infantry battle group attack, and the weather was horrendous, and um, you know the guys were getting hypothermia and all the rest of it, <laughs> uh, and we were sat you know with bruise in the tank, feeling pretty pretty balmy. Um, so yeah, 
it, it just fell in that way. Yeah, I can only imagine the impression that would make on you seeing uh, armoured vehicles at a young age. Because, I mean, I feel that way now when I see armoured vehicles. <laughs> so if you, were, if, if you were a kid seeing those, I can see how that would be uh, that would become ingrained in you. Um, I want to ask your opinion on something that I kind of like to, I like to ask people um, on the podcast is, do you think... Um, do you think that you were born with something in you that that led, led you to towards joining the military, or do you think it was just where you were brought up and who you were brought up with, or, or is it something intrinsic? That, that's a great question. I think it was probably the environment. Um, I, I I think every young boy and and girl has the ability to to be you know to be in the military, be in the army, you know, or one of the other services. Uh, I I think. Um, you know, I think it's the military that made me, you know, I don't, you know, it was, it's a brilliant way of life. Mm. Uh, and I've, you know, got so many mates. I mean, I joined 4RCR. We, we recruited from Glasgow. Um, there, there is me, a, a sort of Surrey Highlander. And some of my best mates now are the, are the you know, the troopers who joined at the same time as me. Mm. We came completely different ends of the spectrum. Uh, you know, these are guys who, who grew up in the roughest areas of Glasgow. And, um, yeah, I now include as some of my greatest mates. Um, but it's the army that, that brought us together. And I think the mutual respect that you get from from that and you grow together. So I think it was probably my environment. Um, I, I sort of think anybody can be trained. You know, if you've got a bit of steel in you uh, and you've got a bit of, you know, grit then then you can make it um maybe the great great soldiers are you know are just born as it were um i, I don't know but i think my environment i i sort of lived and breathed the military because that's what i knew from you know the, the my first memories and pretty much until 10 years ago when i left that's all i had and my, my wife were, were always used to say you spent your life in an institution yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. and and it's yeah. You know, I always thought it would be a challenge leaving, and it's you know it's been an interesting challenge certainly. It's breaking up like a, a relationship, really. Um, someone that doesn't want you anymore because you're too old, and it's basically what it what it boils down to. Um, are you are, when you when you got to the uh, to your unit? What kind of tanks were you using there? Was it the Challenger ones or no? It's Chieftain. Wow. Um, it okay, was. we're going way back. Okay, youngsters listening now, you got to go and Google Chieftain <laughs> and have a look what they look like. And um, and where you uh, where where were you based? Were you out in Germany or was it in the UK or where where were you getting to in those early days? Yeah, we we were in Germany in Osterbrück, in Falkirchen, and uh, yeah, no, it, it was it was very very strange um, for me. I think you know joining a Scottish regiment uh, and, and you know being on Chieftains, which you know they had a, they had a Leyland bus engine. Right. <laughs> remarkably unreliable but um yeah it, 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 it was a shock i mean it was a it was a great fun it was quite a hard life you know you grew up very quickly i imagine then when you were in um when you were in germany then your training and everything would have been geared towards um the soviet like the, the war with the soviet union um so i suppose you got a sit like the cbrn education uh, at a very young a very very early age can you just explain to people first of all what cbrn is and and um and then al- also like the kind of the the warfare that you were looking at at that in, in those early days well you you're absolutely right yeah it was it was very much the cold war and uh, our, our job you know our tanks was to go and you know sit on the border and you know do what we could to 
keep back the marauding uh, eastern hordes. But CBRN, chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear, it used to be called NBC, nuclear, biological and chemical. Um, that was, uh, we, we were trained to fight in this environment. It was thought that the Soviets would use chemical weapons, biological weapons and nuclear weapons. And uh, the, you, know, you were trained to survive long enough to be able to take them on. But it was in those early days that I sort of, you know, at the time I was sitting in my tank in, in what we call for Romeo. You'll remember, you know, you've got your respirator on, your gas mask, you've got your, your NBC suit uh, and God knows what else. And, and if you can imagine sitting in a tank, wearing all this kit, trying to look through a site, uh, at the time I thought that was bonkers, you know, we mm. We had no way that we would uh, survive. And actually, I've been a, a great advocate, you know, s since my time in Syria and working with the Peshmerga in northern Iraq. Um, you know, these things have got to be avoided. You, you, you know, it's ridiculous trying to fight. Um, and, and you know, you, you remember from your tours in Iraq and, and everybody's been to Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, when it's 40 degrees centigrade, you're wearing your body armor and helmet. Then you're expected to put a respiration on and all the rest of it. Yes, it's. it's it's barking. Um, but it, it, it was a profound thing at the time. You know, we we thought the Soviets would use chemical weapons. And, you know, to be frank, I think if there was a East-West confrontation now, um, I don't think the Russians would think twice about it. And, of course, they used, you know, nerve agent in Salisbury, where I'm talking to you from, um, just over two years ago. Mike. Chemical wet of the four Romeo experience when I was uh, my first real one with it was on the Cambrian Patrol um, as part of that you know and then and I and I decided I decided very early on in my army career that I was just shooting myself the first day that there was any kind of nuclear nuclear biological uh, chemical attack it's uh, it's absolutely disgusting I, I have friends that were involved in um, um, you know the, the the invasion of Iraq and obviously they had to go through a lot of that and it's. It's almost impossible if you like, even if you've been in that heat, you forget how hot these places are very quickly. You can almost not get it's, it's very hard to get your head around just how miserable it is to be living inside a rubber suit in, in these places. Um, but no, I, I agree with you as well. I, um, I think we have a certain moral compass in the UK um, where we think that people are going to behave a certain way. And then we have to look to the evidence, as you say, like they have used chemical weapons. And also they are on the side in Syria, which we will come to more. They are on the side of the, the uh, side using chemical weapons. So I think you I think you're dead right. I think it'd be absolutely um, ridiculous of us and very dangerous for us, us to assume otherwise. Um, operational deployments then you were involved in the first Gulf War yeah that's right I was um, I was a young captain uh, and uh, actually I'd, I'd been in Batis in Canada came back early and I saw on the adjutant's desk before everybody else got back that 1420th Hazars just down the road needed um, a couple of extra officers so I, I literally <laughs> I literally screwed up the note chucked it in the bin went to the armory picked up my weapon and drove down to Munster and sort of pull my tabs into the adjutant say I'm here for, you know I'm, I'm the officer that you requested from 4RTR Brilliant. And, uh, and, that, and that was it and then I, I was the um, the squadron what they call it the squadron liaison officer in a in a ferret scout car and uh, we we were quite we were part of four brigades so we were quite late to the party we didn't get to um, 
Saudi until I think it was um, November, December, um, and then straight out into the desert. So yeah, it was just yeah grabbing grabbing the initiative. You know, everybody, you know, when when you're a young boy or girl in the military, you just you just want to get out and get on operations. So. Yeah, I, I made sure that from 4RTR, that was going to be me. Uh, is a ferret scouts cars, those things that look like they're about the size of a ride-on lawnmower, and you have, like, two people in them? Well, yeah, slightly <laughs> bigger. Um, I, I, forgot, I would not be wanting to go onto a battlefield in one of those, so I admire your balls. Bizarrely, they're very well armoured, uh, and they've got a Jaguar engine. So they were. It, it was pretty good. I mean, my ferret could do about 55 miles an hour, which... You know, when you think that was two or three times faster than a tank, because uh, the squadron, the regiment had Challenger ones out there, it, it was it was pretty good. And actually, I it, it's bizarre. You're, I think your first um, operational combat experience has such an imprint on you. I, I remember the first, you know, the first few minutes of the war. You know, I, I thought everybody was firing at me, and I kept kept getting the driver to move us around the battlefield. He was a <laughs> yeah, a, a Glaswegian called Booby Johnson. He just said, "Yeah, for Christ's sake, sir, you get a grip." And uh, and then I had a bizarre experience. Uh, Ten years ago, I was at a, a, a an army drinks party in Germany, and this guy came up to me and he said, um, "Hamish, will you ever forgive me?" And I went, "Forgive you for what?" He said, well, I shot you in the first Gulf War. And I'd completely forgotten. He was our, our forward observation officer in a warrior armoured vehicle. And at one point during the four days in the middle of the night, he'd mistaken me for an enemy tank and had fired 20 rounds from his chain gun that hit the <laughs> turret of, my, um, uh, of the ferret. And luckily, it all bounced off. The only damage was uh, a couple of uh, water... Um, uh, jerry cans were were smashed and my sleeping bag was riddled with holes but i'd completely <laughs> forgotten about it you know for for 20 years it's bizarre it's funny like there's something like that for a lot of people would be like the story of their life wouldn't it um and then when you've amassed as much as you have um and then obviously that's why there's a book you know it's just the it's it's crazy like a lot of stories that soldiers just take for granted and forget are what the um what would be the stuff of most people's kind of like your your the one pub talk that everybody has um what what did you find like what was your you know you said like your first experience of it then because well, i mean i don't i i wasn't there and i don't want to generalize but from what i can understand it was quite a one-sided slog there um were you did you feel in danger at all did you feel excited was was it the you know was was it was it all kind of one-way traffic well, I mean, that, that's a great question. And I think your first combat is, it, you know, it sits in the back of your mind. I mean, th- there were a couple of events that really stood out for me. I mean, the, the first one, and it was, it, it was, a, it was a CBRN one. Right. When, when we, we were expecting, um, uh, we thought Saddam Hussein was going to use chemical. And you may remember from the history, you know, lots of Scud missiles were, were, were fired at the coalition forces. And we anticipated these would be full of sarin nerve agent. Mm. And the first one that came near us in the desert before we'd crossed the the berm into um, into Kuwait, um, you know, all the all, all the uh, detectors went off. You know, we were putting on our respirators and all the rest of it. Now I put my respirator on, and the valves in it didn't work. Um, oh, you know, I, I couldn't breathe, and it was it was just panic. Um, and I tell this in the in the book because, you know, that my first experience of CBRN 
was almost my last. Um, and, and after that incident, I sort of vowed, I'm not getting near any of this bloody stuff ever again. And then, of course, the rest of my life was sort of spent doing that. So that was that was really profound. And then when uh, we were with the um, uh, we, we were with the Royal Scots Battle Group, uh, when an A-10 uh, took out two of their warriors and and killed a number of soldiers. And I, I was probably, I don't know, 700 metres away from that. And that was that was a real shock. And I remember going into the battle group headquarters that night and, you know, the CA talking to the guys, you know, they, they, a number of people have been killed and it was, you know, we've got to, you know, we've got to, got to get on. We'll, 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 we'll mourn these people and everything else when it's all over. And it was, I was just thinking, you know, leadership is, is about, you know, getting people to do things that they wouldn't naturally do. And in this case, we were all feeling, you know, pretty pretty glum as you would do and uh it, it that was that was a thing where you've just got to get out of the trench and keep on going and that that had a sort of profound effect on me i think for the for the rest of my life um that you know you you have just got to keep on going uh however bad things are if you stop and give up then you know your adversary the enemy is one yeah absolutely you know the just made me think then there's I remember like when I first came into the army, there was a very kind of negative feeling about American air power because of incidents like that. You know, the, yeah. and I, I think that, um, you know, for myself and, um, and well, I know yourself, you were out in Afghanistan in 2008 for, for a lot of the Afghanistan veterans out here. We fucking love A-10s. There's nothing we love more than a, than an A-10. And, um, I, th- I think, but like, yeah, I can, I can, definitely remember this feeling when i first joined around 2000 that it was like oh you know watch out for the yanks they'll just come and fucking shoot your vehicles up and i I think afghanistan's kind of flipped that one on its head and we all are very appreciative of that air power now what you must have seen a incredible scale of destruction on that first tour was that something well how how did that affect you was that kind of staggering to be old yeah i I think i think you're right i mean go back to you know the american air power yeah it's phenomenal and as you say, you know, it saved thousands of lives in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but, but there were blue on blues. And, and, you know, these, you know, these things happen in war. We, we all try the, absolutely all we can to prevent them. Um, but we, we had a blue on blue incident um, in, in Iraq, first Gulf War, where we uh, fired at the echelon of, of the artillery brigade, you know, by everything had been done to try and prevent that it these things you know d- do happen uh but the level of destruction w- was phenomenal we we got to the basra road which you may remember is where you know the the the, the retreating iraqi army was pretty much you know obliterated uh, and that was that was pretty shocking and i think you know there was a lot of death and destruction and you know that the average iraqi soldier was you know they didn't want to be there. They were they were forced to be there. They were they were purely cannon fodder, and I think mm. you know that had a pretty profound effect on me too. But yeah, you know, as you know, in this business, you know, destruction. Once once the president, prime minister, king or queen presses that button and unleashes the military, then you know that that is what it's all about. We just have to try and make absolutely certain that um, you know we're, we're doing. You know, it is. The right thing to do for the right reasons, and you know, with two thousand and three, there've been some some issues, and, and I profoundly 
feel that um, you know we've we've done that we haven't done the right thing in Syria. But war, war is a is a you know is a phenomenally difficult, dangerous, and bloody game. Mm, yeah, and as as you say with the the blue on blue, it's a it is an inevitable part on war, and like the. You know, in the instances that we've just talked about, you know, it's, it's the, if an A10 makes a mistake, someone will die. If luckily, you know, if a, someone behind the warrior chain gun makes a mistake, you might be able to get away with it. But these things will, these these things will happen, and it's something that anybody listening who's involved in the military or the police, law enforcement, anything like that, it's something that you need to train for with putting yourself in the most chaotic environments over and over again because it will it will come up. You know, nothing will come to plan. So what what was next for you then, Hamish? What was the uh, what what was the thing from there? Because you, I'm, I have to hear in my notes that you went in. So we're talking what we talking 1991 there, and then you went to Iraq in 2008. Yeah. So what what? So we're we looking at a pretty long career here. So what were kind of the, some of the highlights of your of your army career over that time? I, I am obviously I'm flying through this, but um, I really want to get onto the serious stuff. And you've got a book, so people can go and buy the bloody book. <laughs> this isn't the audio book, so they can go and get that. No, absolutely right, and I, I, I'll sort of fly through it. I, you know. Then came back as a young officer. I did a uh, a tour in Bosnia, which was uh, w- which was phenomenally interesting, um, but but fairly short. I was very very fortunate to get selected to go to the Australian uh, Army Staff College. So we went to live in Australia for a year, and w- which was which was just brilliant. I mean, it probably you know probably didn't help my future career. Um, I pr- perhaps should have stayed in the UK, but. You know, I, I uh, my highlight of Australia is I played semi-professional Aussie rules football. Oh, fantastic! Which, which was I, I was a, a pretty reasonable rugby player, but um, uh, but there was no rugby, and we were living near Melbourne uh, there. So somebody said, "Why didn't you play Aussie rules?" And I did, and I I eventually got picked, but it, it was it was for a you know a professional team. Um, and I think I was only there because I was a pom, and they liked the idea. You know, is a bloody pom, isn't he? Useless, but uh, I, I loved it. You know, we had a brilliant time, and um, uh, and that was great. When I came back from from there, I commanded a tank squadron, G squadron, and one RTR uh, Challenger one, and uh, we we actually did a UN tour to Cyprus, which was dismounted, um, and then. Uh, after that, I was a two IC of two RCR in Challenger two, and then got promoted, uh, and and then became CEO of the CBRN Regiment, which sort of takes us up to really where the the the, the, the book kicks off um, with activities uh, in Iraq um, and then Afghanistan. So let's let's talk about Iraq then. Um, I suppose my question to you as CEO of the CBRN Regiment is, was there WMD? And if so, where are they? Um, and what, what's your, what was your, you obviously had a very, uh, probably a, a great insight into what was going on at the time, the reasons behind the invasion and all that kind of thing. Um, can you, can you talk us through like what, what was the, what were the concerns and what, what actually transpired to be correct and what was transpired to be uh, incorrect? Well, I, you know, this, this could be a, a, you know, a podcast in itself. Um, but I think you know the 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 reason we went to war in 2003 was the WMD, and your listeners will remember the dodgy dossier. Now it turned out that there wasn't much WMD about. A lot of it had been collected by the UN, uh, and in 1996 was all put in a place called Al Mathana, north of Baghdad. Now that became important a lot later because 
a so-called Islamic State broke into Al Mathana in 2016 oh, and, and nicked some of the chemical weapons and used them against the Peshmerga, which... Uh, Jesus Christ. So there, there was that, but there, w- there wasn't really much. What, what we were doing in the CBRN regiment, there was quite a lot of legacy munitions um, from the Iran-Iraq war and elsewhere. And I tell the story of one chap in, in uh, Alamara, the town north of Basra, um, who used to produce a sarin rocket every month. And the Americans paid $20,000 for a sarin rocket. And then we went off and blew it up in the desert. And <laughs> so, it, you know, it wasn't really – the fact that in, in my sort of two, two or so years commanding the regiment, this fellow probably handed in 20 or 25 and made a nice packet out of it. But that, there wasn't wholesale. What there was is, is legacy munitions, which al-Qaeda – quite often used as improvised explosives devices, IEDs, whether on purpose or not. And Al-Qaeda also used to blow up chlorine tankers, um, which mm. which Islamic State did against the Peshmerga much later. So there wasn't um, there wasn't a sort of WMD as envisaged, but there was quite a lot of legacy stuff um, still knocking around that, that we dealt with. And I, I tell in the book a story about we... We had a biological sensor system uh, covering the British AO in southern Iraq. And, and one day that alarm for anthrax and that brought operations to a standstill until we'd sorted it out. Because, you know, we thought we were on the, you know, whether it was Al Qaeda or whoever else was attacking us with anthrax. Anthrax is a very deadly pathogen. You know, it has a 95 percent mortality rate unless you get treatment. And uh, there were only a few of us in theatre at the time who'd had the anthrax vaccine. Uh, and that, that was pretty profound for me, but we, we, we managed to sort that out. So, so that was pretty much um, Iraq. And then after I'd finished commanding, I then did a tour in, in Afghanistan. What, what was it was it took you out to Afghanistan? Is, it, are you, is your career path, once you'd gone down this kind of CBRN route, were you on quite a kind of a linear career path in terms of like cbrn at, at that point where you had you kind of become like that was the hat that you were wearing for the rest of your army career as such well it, it pretty much will and, and you'll understand it you know I, I i was hoping that i'd command that you know a tank or a cavalry regiment so when it was a cbrn regiment that you know a lot of my mates were going you know unlucky dbg um and i did for a bit but then i actually sort of realized that this was really quite interesting stuff so I, I was earmarked a little bit with that but actually i went to afghanistan in a, an intelligence role but but when i was there we we then had these this issue with all these chemicals from the drugs industry and um a, an organization called the british embassy drugs team which was a, a euphemism for mi6 Came up to me one night and said, uh, "We believe you're the you're, you're the uh, the world's expert in chemical weapons. We've got an issue." And I sort of go, "No, no, mate. I'm I'm the assistant intelligence officer here." And they go, "No, no you, you're Colonel DBG, aren't you? You just finished commanding the CBRN regiment." I said, "Yeah." And they said, "Well, our records show you're it, mate. We've got this problem." And uh, we then had to deal with this massive sort of. What, what would have been a fertilizer bomb mm. uh, and uh, deal with that. So that, that was slightly accidental. And, um, and, and again, when, when, I, when I left the army, I, I, I sort of stumbled back into CBRN bizarrely through the media because a lot of my 
uh, a lot of the guys running security for people like the BBC and other media organizations are all ex-military. And one of them said to me, look, DBG, we, you know, we can you go and sort of look after a team going into Syria to cover a chemical weapons attack? And that, that you know, got me going again on the whole CBRN side. Coming on to Syria then, this is a situation that obviously unfolded. A lot of people weren't really aware of what was going on in Syria, even until really ISIS kind of came onto, uh, came onto the stage. When did you become aware of what was happening there? And when did you be- become worried about the potential use of chemical weapons in that part of the world? Well, the, um, the Arab Spring in Syria sort of started in 2011. Um, in, in 2012, there was uh, indications that um, the Syrian regime, Syrian government, might start using um, chemical weapons. Uh, and that's really when, when I sort of began to go, get involved. I'd actually been working with the uh, Kurdistan government in northern Iraq. They'd asked me to go and um, help them decontaminate Halabja, where there was a massive chemical attack back, back in 1988. Um, and there was quite a lot of linkages between the various Kurds, the Iraqi Kurds, the Syrian Kurds. Um, so I knew that the Syrian Kurds were getting concerned that Assad would use um, chemical weapons. Uh, But it was then early in um, 2013. In fact, March 2013, there was a reported chemical attack in a place called Sheikh al-Masud, which is a suburb of Aleppo. And CBS News uh, got in touch with me and said, look, Hamish, we think there might be a chemical attack. Can you you help our crew and advise? So I, I then got involved with that. And it uh, it transpired that there was um, a, a, a sarin attack, uh, and and it was very evident. You know, I, I started telling people in the British government that it was happening, and others, and they're going, "Well, there's no evidence," and all the rest of it. Uh, so then we sort of realised that we'd we'd have to try and collect evidence. Now, at the time, the Syrian government were not party to the Chemical Weapons Convention, uh, therefore. In theory, the international community could do nothing about it. Uh, we then had another chemical attack in a place called Sarakeb in May uh, 2013. And the BBC asked me to, to go out to the border and help with their reporting of it. And uh, there with Ian Panel, their Middle East um, reporter, we covered the story. And I try, this was the first time I tried to get some samples. And um, the book goes into great detail, which I won't hear, but we try to get samples and, and, and failed. But, but actually, the, the samples that we'd packaged up somehow managed to find their way back to the UK and the US. And um, you may not remember it, but in um, August, uh, no, in July um, 2013, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, did say in the House of Commons, we have compelling evidence that Assad is using chemical weapons. And I sort of feel, you know, at least, you know, that evidence that I had my DNA on it, although we didn't quite get it. And then the massive chemical attack happened on the 21st of August 2013, where, you know, up to 1,700 people were killed. Uh, sarin, probably, you know, half a tonne of sarin was used. And by then I was advising an organisation called OSM which was the Union of Syrian Medical Charities. And they were pretty much running 
all the hospitals and clinics in the rebel-held areas. And um, in our clinic in Ghouta, on the morning of the 21st of August, we had nine doctors treating casualties and seven of them died from contamination, cross-contamination. Seven of the doctors? Yeah. And that, wow. that to me was, was shocking. And still, you know, the world was not, you know, sort of onto this. But, you know, so many civilians died um, because, you know, they had no way of protecting themselves. So I then started running webinars into Syria, teaching people what to do and how to, you know, protect themselves if they had nothing. And we set up something called the CBRN Task Force. And the CBRN Task Force really uh, configured hospitals to treat chemical casualties, but also trained people to collect evidence because without the evidence, nobody was going to do anything. You might remember back in August 2012, President Obama said there's a red line. If you use chemical weapons, you know, you'll get hammered. But then Guta happened a year later and, um, and nothing happened because people weren't convinced about the evidence. So, so the CBRN task force was set up to do that. And we've been collecting evidence ever since. And, you know, I'm delighted that a lot of our evidence has, has been the evidence that has been acted on by the British and American, French and other governments. But still, um, Assad continued to use chemical weapons because, you know, we might have acted on it, but we haven't done anything demonstrative to stop him using them. Guys, so much to go into here. Um, one of the things I think we should we should talk about Um I don't want to be gory for the sake of being gory, but one of the things that's so easy to do as human beings is we hear a number like 1,700 people and we think, oh, that's terrible. But we just kind of imagine these people just lying down in a cloud and dying, which I imagine is not the case. Um, and I think it's very, like, I think one, I think that's part of the issue with why we've let this stuff slide as Britain and America is because, you know, we... We we can ignore the um, the very nasty kind of act, actual effects. So can you tell us what sarin is and how it works, and um, you know, and and how why it is such a horrible a horrible weapon of war, or why it shouldn't be a weapon of war? Well, I think uh, absolutely you you put put your finger on it. Um, first of all, chemical weapons are completely indiscriminate. Um, so you know, it's one thing firing a bullet at an opposing soldier enemy. Uh, it's another just covering a place with with chemical weapons uh, and i think you know so mostly women and children die because actually you know the soldiers in in syria a lot of them have gas masks so they whack them on and they they survive hmm. i think the, the the real horror with chemical weapons um is uh, they say drowning is the worst way to go uh, and sort of with with chemical weapons in effect you you sort of drown because most of them act on your main sort of bodily functions, your lungs, your heart, uh, and, and stop them working. Um, and sarin is, is a nerve agent, and, and basically it destroys your nerves. And without your nerves, your lungs don't work, your heart don't, doesn't work. And, I, and for me, it's been very profound. I, I mentioned that I, I was diagnosed with something called sudden cardiac death syndrome, um, which is a very rare heart condition that generally affects, you know, elite sportsmen. But um, when, when I was diagnosed, you know, the, the, the initial bit of it, you know, when you, when you have a heart attack, the, the, the thing with me was you just couldn't breathe and it sound, seemed slightly counterintuitive. Um, and I was um, with the Peshmerga in 
2016 when um, so-called Islamic State fighters fired chlorine mortars at us. Um, it, it, so I, I've seen it at, at close up. And psychologically, it's, it's, it's absolutely horrific. Um, but I think that the main thing is, you know, these are dreadful weapons. For almost 100 years after the First World War, they weren't used. As people, you know, even Hitler didn't. I mean, he, he murdered millions of Jews using chemicals in concentration camps, but he never used chemical weapons on, on the battlefield. And, you know, it wasn't really until the Iran-Iraq war and then Syria, that, that chemical weapons are, are used. And, and I think absolutely abhorrent. It's a bit like the barrel bombs in Syria, which, mm. which are these massive barrels full of, you know, rusty nails that are tipped out of a helicopter at about 3,000 feet and, um, you know, just kill everything in sight. Again, completely indiscriminate. Um, and I think that's the indiscriminate is is why they're so abhorrent. And, and, and the death is just... You know, it is shocking and it kills far more women and children and civilians than it does combatants. It's very telling that, you know, America didn't drop chemical weapons on Japan, but they did drop nuclear weapons. You know, I mean, that goes to show there was something about how, you know, how horrible people feel, feel that these weapons are. Um, I mean, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were quite commonplace in the First World War. But then, like you said, like I can't, you know, it's not something I've ever come across reading memoirs and things about the Second World War. It's not something I've ever come across. And like you said, for Hitler not to use it, because um, again, I don't, you know, with with the caveat, yes, he did use it in the, in the camps. But you know, the war on the East was about as brutal as you can get. So you would have thought that they would have used it there. But you know, it's very, it's very interesting that they that they wouldn't do that. What's your what what what's your thinking? The reasons behind that was it? Do you think is because they feared the retaliation for it, or was it just really that they are uh, um, that there, there was some kind of moral line that they didn't want to cross? Well, I, I don't think there was any moral line. You're right; they were used a lot in the First World War um, and very effective. Uh, a lot of people report that Hitler didn't use them because he thought that um, if he used them, the West would use nuclear. And he thought the West was way ahead of him in nuclear terms. So he, he was hoping to avoid any CBRN use at all in the Second World War because he thought he could win with, without it. But he thought if it came to a chemical and nuclear um, battle, he, he would lose. So I think that, that seems pretty plausible to me. I think what, what, has, what has struck me since is that actually chemical weapons – you know, are morbidly brilliant. You know, if you've got m no morals or, or or scruples, you would use them. And I, I personally believe Assad is still in power um, because he has used them. I mean, the big attack in Ghouta uh, seven years ago, he was about to fall. Lots of my Syrian friends during Damascus at the time were saying Assad was on his way out. So he thought, well, you know, I'll, this is the last throw of the dice. Yep. Uh, and he took a gamble. And his gamble was right because, you know, we – the First of all, the British government decided not to punish him for using chemical weapons, and then the Americans did. And then, you know, seven years later, he's still in power. Another half million people are dead. And whenever he's been in real trouble, he's used chemical weapons. And, you know, we haven't prevented that happening. Absolutely. Uh, he was on the ropes. And, um, you know, personally, as a former British soldier and as a British citizen I've been disgusted with the way that we've we've handled Syria you know like absolutely disgusted um can you talk about 
the Obama's red line. And can you talk about how how we essentially um, set up this kind of uh, we we set this up and then backed away from it and what the reasons were and the and, and then the kind of the um, the the implications of of not kind of uh, seeing through our promises. Back in uh, September 2012, uh, Obama said his great statement about the use of chemical weapons would cross a red line um, and they would act. When we had the Gutra attack um, in September of that year, there was a vote in Parliament and I I was there. I was in Parliament. I'd been lobbying um, MPs and ministers saying, you know, I had firsthand experience. This is shocking. This has happened. Um, but also at the time, and you, you, you may have seen it all over social media, there are all these trolls and bots who spurt out all this propaganda and disinformation, predominantly coming from the Russians and the Syrians, Russian bots. Um, saying that it didn't happen. Uh, and it absolutely did. And, and in the vote in Parliament, um, I think much to the, um, much to the chagrin of, of Ed Miliband, who was the then Labour MP, he decided, Labour um, uh, leader, he decided to make a political issue of this and he made his people vote against Britain taking action. Uh, and I, I think, you know, David Cameron's speech in, in the debate was was pretty, pretty light, pretty pathetic. Um, and I was infuriated. I, I was I just couldn't believe that people were, you know, were, were backing down. And in the end, the British government voted not to take action. The next day, um, the Americans had a similar uh, vote uh, and I was commentating on it for Sky and I said, I can't believe this. And But President Obama, you know, with his closest ally pulling out, decided to pull out too. And that, you know, and that to me was, you know, we then, every despot, rogue state um, and terror group then thought, right, you know, chemical weapons, you know, they're back on the agenda and they have been. You know, we've seen them being used by so-called Islamic State. Um, we've seen them be used by North Korea in the VX murder in Kuala Lumpur. And we've seen the Russians use them on the streets of Salisbury. Um, and I think, you know, they, chemical weapons are the ultimate terror weapon. You know, terrorists, I, I, th- there's a brilliant um, biography called Nine Lies by a fellow called Eamon Dean. Absolutely love it. One of my favourite books. Well, love it. A- Eamon, as, as you know, was a was a double agent for many years for, for, for us inside Al-Qaeda. And in fact, we, we worked out that we were a few miles away in Bosnia back in, in, in 1995. <laughs> really? When he was, uh, so for people that don't know, he was, uh, he was fighting with the, uh, the G, well, they weren't, I suppose it was jihadis, but not in the way that we really think of it now. Um, they were almost like, uh, they were kind of like nice jihadis Amon went on to be Al-Qaeda's chemical weapons expert. Yeah, yeah, he did. But it's a great book, great, great book. But buy, buy Chemical Warrior first, listeners, and then buy <laughs> Nine Lives by Eamon Dean. Uh, no, a- a- absolutely. So um, what what the point was is that, that you know, the, the Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you know, these ultimate terror weapons, that's exactly what they want. They want to create terror and cause mayhem, and and they've seen um, they've seen what's happened in Syria. They've seen the impact of the you know Salisbury quarter of an egg cup of Novichok fixated the world for eighteen months. And mm. although COVID is not a biological weapon, it it is illustrating what you know if a terror group could could release you know a a a 
a virus, a pathogen, a deadly pathogen, you know, the impact they could have. And, you know, that that I think that all stems back to, you know, the red line crossing that we didn't absolutely stamp on it. Um, and we we part of my sort of moving forward is to try and highlight these things, which, as I said, is one of the reasons for writing the book to say we, we've got it. We, got, we can't brush this under the carpet. You know, it's, uh, I accept it's very difficult. You know, we must strain every nerve and sinew to to rid the world of chemical and biological weapons. I, I feel like that vote and that moment in history will be judged in the same way as our inaction in Rwanda. Um, it was like it's it was political expediency to step away from it. It was a hard decision, absolutely. Um, but to to do nothing then, like it's just it 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 opened the doors. And one wonders. I mean, we'll never know. One wonders like what 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 were Russia saying behind the doors? at that point, because it really changed the face um, of what was going on in Syria in that region um, at, at that point. And I, but I, I just feel like as, you know, as British citizens and British soldiers that we, you know, we, we it's it's not our greatest moment. Um, absolutely. And I, I, I think that if we are to be the country that we want to be, be the nation that we want to be, then, you know, we, those, it's the, it's the equivalent of seeing your, your neighbor beat the shit out of his wife and just close the blinds and pretend that it's not happening you know it's just it's 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 not on it must be it must be incredibly hard for you to see that knowing what's going on there and know that there's something that we can do about it and not do it like how do you keep a lid on like how do you walk the line between being a advocate for action against this stuff and policing this thing and um not throttling a politician that that's a really good point and i think um I think a lot of our inactivity in Syria goes back to Iraq 2003. Um, and, you know, I think politicians, you know, admit they got that wrong and they didn't want to repeat it. But but I kept saying to a lot of the politicians, you know, I've, I've spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Syria you know, is different. But I think we have a, you know, a lot of very unworldly, inexperienced politicians now. I mean, I, at one point I was... I was tempted to become a politician. Um, I've not rather naively thought that the 650 best men and women in the country were MPs and running the country. I then got to know a lot of them and realised that's just not the case. <laughs> um, and oh, yeah. so, but but I then realised I, I was more interested than in trying to help the good people of Syria than perhaps the good people of Dorset and Wiltshire, who I'd be representing. And I realised. That that was um, that was probably wrong, but but it is it is a challenge, and I know that you know one you know shouts and screams at these things, and you know there are lots of other things going in the world, and there there are huge amounts of challenges, um, and it does get frustrating. But you know, I te- a couple of stories I tell in the book of, of of young kids I've seen who've been killed, and and it was one little girl who who um, was caught in a barrel bomb blast. And uh, we were trying to get her across the border and she sort of died there and then. And I just thought, you know, it, it was it was pretty shocking um, and very sad. And, you know, her parents probably didn't even know what happened, if she had any. And um, and that was pretty profound. And then I, I was in Syria last year and um, just after I'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I actually got I got the call from my oncolog- oncologist while I was in Syria and I, I was feeling pretty sorry for myself and I was in a hospital in Idlib and um, there was a little boy who was sat on a bench 
and he didn't have any legs and he had one arm and he was wired up to a load of machines. I didn't know what they were. And I, I subsequently learned he'd been caught in a, in a, um, a, a Afghan, not an Afghan, a Syrian airstrike three weeks beforehand. And I, I, I was obviously looking, you know, like thunder. And I caught him out of the corner of my eye and, and I, I saw his sort of mouth twitching. Uh, and then, you know, sort of smile appeared and then a massive grin. Uh, I sort of went, God, mm. bloody hell, DBT, get, you know, get yourself together. This, this boy he couldn't have been more than two, maybe three years old. Um, you know, he had one limb left and he, he was smiling. So you, th- those sort of things, I think, you know, just keep you going and, um, you know, just, just force you. So it's, you know, every nerve and sinew just to keep going and try and help them because, you know, not a lot of people are. There are a few, a lot of my medical and doctor friends like Professor David Knott uh, and a lot of the Syrian doctors um, who I mentioned in the book, you know, just do an amazing job. But, you know, in places like Washington, D.C. and and Whitehall, you know, it's it's a secondary concern. And, you know, when you've been there, that's 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 a shock. But I realise, you know, you know, particularly during the COVID thing, everybody wants to get us all sorted out here at home. But I can tell you, you know, in Idlib, it's a shocking state with COVID. But then, you know, it's a lot of the international community want to sort themselves out first. And I get that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Again, there's just so much to go into here. I mean, one of the things I just want to commend you, Hamish, for what you do, because um, not everyone, myself included, could go over and and stand up to seeing those kind of things. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I got a tear in my eye now thinking about those kids. It's fucking it's just absolutely terrible. And. Again, it just makes me want to throttle some people because I just figured if one or two people from each party had gone over there and actually seen with their own eyes what was going on, then we might not be in there. Might not be another half million people dead now. Um, and it's not the people in the ivory towers of. It's not Assad that pays the price, is it? It's fucking kids. Um, you know, and like I said, I just I just feel like we should be ashamed as a country um, for our lack of action in this. I, I really do. Uh, I don't think history is going to judge us kindly on it. Um, but um, no, but I mean, the the great thing about it, if there is a great thing in it, is that there are, you know, like you said, the story about that kid and, you know, there's just, you know, it's uh, really, make, really shows the best sides of humanity as well as the first one. It was cliche as that um, as that sounds. But the 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 thing with your when you when you learned that you had prostate cancer, I wonder, did that? Did that almost make you have a kind of like a more like a bit of reckless abandon with your life at that point? Because obviously, you know, you're putting yourself in some dangerous positions here. I and and I'm not sure what what's your situation. Do you have family? What were you kind of thinking? Like, how did how did that conversation go in your head about deciding, like, you know, the when you're kind of confronting your mortality on so many different fronts at the same time? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's. It's more easy to explain it to fellow veterans. Uh, I mean, my wife's view was, um, you know, when, when I left the the military, um, you know, I'd, I'd done tours. You know, these are six month tours, so you know, nipping off for a few weeks to Syria was, you know, not such a big issue. Although, you know, I did um, the, the first time. The first time I went to Syria, I told my wife I was going to do some training in Greece, and um, and somebody said to her, hey, hey yeah, I've just seen Hamish on the BBC in Syria. <laughs> and she said, no, no, you can't be. He's in Rumbled. Greece doing some training. And I said, oh, crikey, yeah. Um, so uh, there was there was a bit of that. I mean, I, 
I, I, I consider myself to be incredibly fortunate. Um, you know, my sudden cardiac death syndrome, you know, it, sh it should have killed me. But it, it's one of these things when you know about it, you can do something about it. So I, mm. I take a pill which sort of prevents my heart from from beating itself to pieces, which but you might remember this, the footballer for a very smart Malumba and the cricketer who um, and, and, you know, virtually any young child you hear dies on a sports pitch. It's it's from a this. Right. So, again, and with the prostate cancer, um, you know, I was fortunate. I had it checked and, you know, there, there are lots of different types of prostate cancer. Mine happens to be the very slow growing one. So, you know, it's it just sort of needs to be checked. But, you know, with any of these things, when when, you know, the cancer word is mentioned or the heart word, you go, God, you know, bloody hell. What for me, it yeah. it galvanizes you. Let's, you know, make the most of I get a bit cross to my kids if they're, you know, moaning or being a bit idle. I so, you know, I say cross. So, you know, I say, come on, you know, think of those kids in Syria, get off your ass and do something. But for me, it's been galvanizing. And and I, you know, the the, the book is you know, I, I hope it's not, uh, uh, you know, any sort of self-glorification because it's absolutely not meant to be. But it's it's highlighting these issues. And, you know, somebody suggested that, that, that I do. I think, you know, I think most of us veterans sort of think that, you know, we there's nothing particularly special about what we do. And lots of people have been in the same boat. But but I suppose actually, you know, we we have lived slightly different lives and, you um, and if we can have a voice for good, then then that's something that we should do. And that's certainly the, the way that, that that I felt, because, you know, it's not been particularly easy producing the book. And, um, you know, I know a lot of friends and family are, are going to go, oh, crikey, didn't know that, didn't know mm. you did that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, it's hopefully it's a force for good. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think we should be honest that one of the things in the military is as great as we can be at supporting each other and in some things, we can cut each other down in others. And one of the things like that is, oh, who does this person think he is doing a book? And I'm speaking from experience here as someone who's done a book uh, about the military. But it's like, look, at the end of the day, if people don't speak up, then the stories of the people that you worked with get forgotten over time. Um, and I don't think anybody wants us that, that, that. So I think it's very important to put these out there, especially a book like this that has so much, um, so much to, uh, important things. Because the thing is, Syria is an, an open wound. You know, this is still going on. This isn't something that happened 40 years ago, which has been resolved. You know, this is fucking happening now. These attacks are happening now. Um, I want to say, this is the first time I've ever said this on the podcast. I want to talk about your prostate. Um, and, um, what, what one of the things I want to talk about is because I and this is you know I, I think this is a young man thing in general. We don't like to think of ourselves as as being vulnerable to these kind of things. Um, how how can people get checked for this kind of thing? How often should they get checked? And also, um, one of the things just to tie this into someone we had on the podcast recently. Apparently, if you've been in Iraq, if you've been in Afghanistan, and if you've been exposed to burn pits there is a higher chance of you getting these diseases earlier than you would do if you'd lived a life without the exposure to those kind of toxins and things. So it's something to be aware of as well, that if you have been around those burn pits, I know a lot of us have, yeah. that this is something that, you know, it might say on the paperwork you shouldn't have this until a certain stage in your life, but like we, we have, there have been 
um, veterans passing away from cancers a lot younger than they should be. You're absolutely right. And we, we don't really know. But it's um, with all these things, it's, it's much better, you know, to to get it checked out. I mean, so, sometimes it's a bit difficult and, you know, particularly for us blokes, um, you know, it, it's something that doesn't come naturally. I mean, I would say, and, and again, this isn't gospel, but but mostly, you know, on on fifty plus, uh, prostate mostly affects people over fifty. Um, but most prostate cancers are very treatable. So it's and it's a simple, it's a simple blood test um, that they can very quickly work out if you, you know, once your what they call it's your PSA level. Um, and I can't quite remember what the acronym stands for, but if that's at a certain level, you then get get other tests. And I, I was fortuitous. I, I was, um, you know, a reasonably sort of um, well-paid executive a few years ago, and um, you know, it was part of the deal that you know you had a had an annual MOT, as it were, and one of those, um, you know, a year ago showed that up. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I, I, it's very much, it, it's a hereditary thing as well. So, you know, if any of your fam, close family have had it, you, you should uh, definitely get it checked out, um, as with some of these other diseases. You know, so with prostate, it's, it's just a fact of life. Uh, get it checked. And, you know, most of the time, these things are very, very treatable. Uh, it's, it's, we're just not very good at looking after ourselves sometimes. And, um you know, I expect, you know, my, you know, my kids are much better. My son's much, much more sort of aware of, you know, these sort of things than, than, than I was at his age. Um, but it's just, you just have to bite the bullet and get on with it. Yeah, the, the paras we have <laughs> listening to the uh, podcast are all shaking their heads because they're very used to checking their own <laughs> prostates. So uh, no danger, uh, no danger on that side of things. So you're saying that it's, it's really galvanized you then. So uh, would you, would you say that, would you say that in life we almost have to go through something that really exposes our mortality for us to actually fully actualize our lives? I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I think everybody is different. Um, and, you know, some people are more motivated that, than, than others. I, I, but I do, you know, life is all about experiences. And it, what, what you see in the military, what you see in the battlefield, what you see in war zones you know, if it doesn't affect you, then, you know, crikey, you're, you're some kind of person. So it's, um, I think what is important is that, you know, you make some, something of it. Uh, you know, I think about the, the little girl who died uh, and the little boy without any limbs. Uh, I think, you know, we, you know, his legacy is, and her legacy is, it's got to mean something. It's got to get us to do things. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it might sound a bit crass, but some of our politicians, you know, I'd like to lead them through the streets of, you know, Aleppo and Sarakeb mm -hmm. and, you know, show them what the real world's about. And they might, you know, that might stimulate them. And I, yeah, again, I don't, I don't, we, there's some very brilliant politicians on all sides of the house and in, in, in the government. But, you know, it just strikes me a lot of them have, haven't got a lot of life's experiences. And although there are quite a lot of veterans, you know, in in Parliament, I don't know what the figure is, but, um, you know, who are good. It's nothing like, you know, after the Second World War, you know, 50 percent of politicians would have done some sort of military service and would have experience. 
uh, nowadays, you know, they, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, you know, veterans in parliament out of 650. So there is not, I don't, I don't think there's, there's sort of that understanding. Um, and I don't know how you correct it, but, it, you know, I just, you know, I would like to, I would like to think that people like you and I um, can, you know, have a, have an impact. And in fact, a lot of people, when I was say said I wanted to be an MP, said, "Don't. You've got far more influence and effect from outside than being part of the machine, if you like." All right, guys, we'll be back to the podcast in one second. I just want to say a huge thank you to the Royal British Legion because without them, there is no podcast. Guys, they make it happen here. Believe me, um, and I'm, I'm being fully, fully open here. Without the without the Royal British Legion, there wouldn't be a podcast. They make this financially viable. Um, Basically, uh, I'd like to be a lot richer than I am, but I'm not. And the Royal British Legion are, um, are covering costs for this podcast and helping it run. Um, we really, really appreciate it. And they do a lot more than that, guys. They offer everything from financial, um, from financial assistance and advice to care homes. They've got it all going on. And one of the things that I love about the Royal British Legion so much is that they're not just interested in the day-to-day of our modern lives. They are. They are interested in keeping alive the memories of those who have gone before us which is so fucking important um it's one of the things we want to do here on the podcast and the royal british legion do it so well they do it through obviously the events that they organize um not so much of those at the moment unfortunately due to covid but there is still a lot going on online and you can find it all at rbl.org.uk or at royal british legion i'll tag them up in everything guys just follow the links in the notes follow the links on my social media posts and you'll find them on there they're doing a lot of work to keep to keep the sacrifices remembered. And, you know, we all say it, don't we? We will remember them and we must remember them. Um, the Royal British Legion are a huge part of that. So please go and give them a follow. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I know some American veterans who are, are thinking along the same lines as you who are going in it or who were in it, who are now coming out of it because the machine is almost so set in its ways now that you can get more done outside of it. Because I'm sure there are a few politicians out there who are fighting the good fight. But, um, you know, it's just, just this. I think the problem is just... Um, there's there's a lot on their plate, you know. Fair play to them. They have a they have a lot on their plate, and it's it's easier to it's it's easier to kind of like you know you hear a you hear a number, you hear a figure. It's easy. It's very hard to confront what that truth of seventeen hundred deaths means. What each one of those each one of those people, you know, they weren't a number. They had they 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 laughed at things. They got mad at things. You know, they had dreams. They loved their parents. They loved their siblings. You know, these were living, breathing human beings, not like a number on a report that they got. Um, and I just, I, I feel like our politicians owe it not just to um, the like to us, but to themselves as human beings to go to these places. And I think if just a few people from each party actually went and saw it, the message would get the message would get across. I just think this is so kind of devoid of reality. But that's not just politicians; that's just people in general. You know, and and it goes the other way as well. You know, it's sometimes people are, are all too happy for us to get into a war, you know, so we can go the other way as well because it, it swings it swings one, from one way to another. On the subject of war, not that I want this to be doom or glue, um, but the reality is that I do think we are in it. I do think we are in a... Um, a very important time in history. Um, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts right now, as it always is, but now feels especially um, 
especially kind of in the balance. Um, what is the situation with the kind of like, I know you've talked about inactivity on the international stage because, you know, chemical weapons is something that is in, is in nation's arsenals. Um, and there's a lot of potential flashpoints around the world right now. A lot of them going on right under our nose. People aren't really, you know, uh, we're familiar with. Actually, you know what, Hamish? One thing I want to just talk to you about really quick was you said you worked with the Peshmerga. Hmm. Um, something I want to ask you is, on a personal level, how did it feel when um, we pulled out of, um, I say we, really America, you know, but obviously I count, that, I count our actions with them pulled out of Kurdistan and kind of left the Kurds to the mercy of of Turkey and now you know now that I see that I've seen today that Turkey and Russia actually mount joint patrols in uh Erbil now and these kind of areas so how did that make you feel on a, on a personal level um well well I think there's the uh they, they pulled out of uh northeast Syria which is the Syrian Kurd area we in the Iraqi Kurd area um they, they weren't really there but yeah no that, that was a sh- absolute shock i mean you know it, it seemed that um trump woke up one morning and you know thought that that was a good idea um luckily a lot of the special forces guys uh hung around um but, but it, yeah it was um it was very very difficult and i think for the kurds in northern iraq i mean the, the peshmerga you know they were the main fighters on the ground who defeated islamic state uh, and I, you know, I, I got s- such admiration for them. You know, during during Saddam's time, uh, Saddam murdered over 400,000 Kurds, a lot oh with chemical God. weapons. I mean, Britain did um, set up the no-fly zone in 1991, which saved thousands. I was always, my first trip to Kurdistan after I left the army, I, was, I met one of the ministers there who said to me, um, Hamish, the two people I want to meet most in my life are Sir John Major and Tony Blair. And I said, crikey, you're in a pretty small class there. <laughs> I like to meet Tony Blair, but not for the same reasons. <laughs> but uh, And I said, why? He said, well, you know, Sir John Major set up the no-fly zone that saved the Kurdish race. And Tony Blair organised the defeat of Saddam Hussein. So it was, it, it was um, bizarre, but you know, uh, we, we very much have, have left them to their own devices. And and when we didn't want to put boots on the ground to defeat ISIS in Syria and Iraq, actually, it was the Peshmerga who, you know, the Iraqi army were there as well. But, you know, everybody will tell you it's the Peshmerga who did, you know, the hard yards, the hard fighting, who, who ultimately defeated um, Islamic State. So we, we, we owe them a, a tremendous amount. Um, but our... You know, our, our standing back now. Sure, we were provide. We still do provide air power to take out is, Islamic State. But you know, as you know, you you can't do it all from the air. You need people on the ground as well, and that's that's what we don't have. But we rely on the Kurds and others to do that. But we don't necessarily then, you know, back them up with um, the support that they deserve. Obviously, you know, it's not they're not our decision to make. But if it was your decision to make as a British soldier at the time or former British soldier, would do you think that um, do you think that we should have put boots on the ground, like as in real boots on the ground, not just special forces for taking the fight to ISIS? Um, I think if we step back a bit, should we have struck Assad in August 2013 when he used chemical weapons? Mm-hmm. Yes, we absolutely should have done, and really, really hard. Because 
at that time, ISIS was just getting going. And when the Syrian people saw that the international community were going to allow this butcher to murder them, they then moved in their droves to Islamic State. And then that created Islamic State that then spread into Iraq and went, you know, went on from there. So I think, you know, we, we should have struck once once the genie was out of the bottle, it then becomes more difficult. And, you know, mm. I, I absolutely get that, um, you know, the amount of British soldiers that were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, were, was was unacceptable. But, uh, I, you know, I still, you know, Afghanistan, a place I love and, you know, spend a long time there. I, I still don't quite get why we spent so much time and effort there. The Taliban are never going to attack us in London. Yeah. But Islamic State are, are a threat. And the other thing people don't realize, Syria is a Mediterranean country. You know, I remember being on holiday in Turkey a few years ago and, and somebody I met on the holiday had heard me on, you know, on the radio or the BBC. Uh, and they said, oh, I gather you do a lot of stuff in Syria. And I said, yeah, do you know where Syria is? And they went, oh, I don't know, miles away. I said, no, it's, it's about half an hour over there. I mean, you know, it is right on our doorstep. And, and you know, if if something had happened in Greece like this, w- would we have stood by and do, done nothing? We didn't in Bosnia and Kosovo and places like that. So I think people don't realise quite how close it is and what happens there uh, will have an impact. So, but going back to your question about boots on the ground to defeat ISIS, ha- I, I personally believe had we um, thumped Assad back in 2013, then there wouldn't have been the requirement. Mm, yeah, I mean that 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 that, that makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, um, it's you, they basically it's once you once you've had your bluff called in these places, you know, people like they they don't have as short memories as we do um, as we do in the West. You know, in in the West, everything is done on election cycles and you know four-year terms i mean there's people in afghanistan who still remember what we did in the old you know in the anglo-afghan wars over 100 years ago you know these places have long memories and your 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 word and your actions um you know they matter um what is the what, what in terms of like big nation states um like the major states who are the who who are the kind of leaders in the field of chemical weapons and if there were you know who is the the biggest threats and would you see over the next few years of, of using them? Well, I think there are a number. You've got you've got road states like North Korea, who we know have about five thousand tons of VX, you know, which is yeah you know, a really deadly, deadly nerve agent. And um, you know whether we also know they're trying to develop you know a, a, a nuclear warhead to go on the missiles that could reach the states. Um, so I think I think the Americans actually in that case keeping a very close touch on them. But what worries me about North Korean chemical weapons is that I think they'd very happily sell to um, groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Um, you know, if they if they were offered several million dollars for some, some nerve agent, I'm sure they'd sell it. And that that is a real concern. I think, you know, Russia is a huge concern. Uh, you know, they very publicly declared in 2017 they got rid of all their chemical weapons. Mm-hmm. They now realise that they had a, a secret chemical weapons programme developing Novichok, which is probably the most toxic chemical that's ever been produced on Earth. And and in the unlikely event, I think it is unlikely that there is an East-West confrontation, I don't think the Russians would have a, 
bat an eyelid about using chemical weapons. Um, so, so therein, China, we know that China probably has large stockpiles. I think the Chinese, the way the Chinese have reacted to COVID is of huge concern. You know, their, their suppression of the data and intelligence for weeks in January really allowed COVID to spread around the world. And you could argue that China has been the least affected country in the world um, by COVID. Uh, and, and the whole COVID thing has shown to anybody who would want to do us harm, you know, quite how effective biological pathogens can be. And then you've got um, terror groups. So we, we, we know from Eamon Dean that Al-Qaeda did an awful lot of research and work into chemical and biological weapons. And we know that Islamic State did as well. They, Islamic State made their own mustard agent, mustard gas, um, and because of its horror effects, uh, would like to use it. We then see, you know, only last week, the Beirut explosion. You know, that, in effect, ammonium nitrate is a toxic chemical, um, which was the basis of a lot of bombs that Taliban uh, and al-Qaeda made in Afghanistan. So, you know, you've, you put all these things together and you build up a picture um, where in the past people have not used chemical weapons because it was seen to be the ultimate taboo. But now, you know, why not? There, there was a piece only a, sort of a year ago with uh, Islamic State uh, um, jihadis trying to smuggle hydrogen sulfide onto a Etihad jet in Sydney, which would probably have brought the jet down. Um, but, you know, it's, all these little things sort of mount up, which is why, you know, I think we must be absolutely demonstrative. The challenge is that whatever the UK, the US and France sort of try and do, the Russians and the Chinese always try and oppose. Um, so trying to get some international movement here going is is pretty difficult. But but we must try. And, you know, you can get the feeling that we we sort of gave up in 2013 and haven't really got back on that particular horse, as it were. Yeah, and as you were saying, you know, what we've seen over the, over the last six months or so, it makes you think if there was a, a, a you know, something that was killing 10% of people, that a lot of Western countries would just fall in on themselves, in, in only a lot of sense. It's... Um, it's it's got to be a very tempting it's got to be a very tempting weapon for a lot of these especially um, like you said these kind of like non-state actors um, with Russia and their use of chemical weapon in um, in Salisbury do you think that that was almost a we'll do what we fucking want watch this kind of moment because surely something like that is very detectable and they would know that so is it almost is it almost like a, a kind of two fingers up and um, you know, in that that kind of statesmanship. Yeah, I, th I think you're probably right. I, I, you know, Putin is the ultimate strategist, um, uh, and mainly because he, he doesn't care. Uh, it's like all this disinformation that that comes out. You know, the Russians are happy to put out any rubbish, whereas you know the British government, everything has to be double and triple checked and signed off. You know, in the nth degree. Um, so. So I think you're right. I think Salisbury was a bit of a two fingers. Um, and Putin, you know, had previously said anybody double crosses the, the Russian state will be killed. And there are about 14 other deaths, you know, associated 
around the Scripple poisoning of people who were either double agents or who who, who openly opposed uh, the, the Russian state. Um, however, and we also know that Novichok was designed so it was undetectable by NATO detectors and overmatched our PPE, our protective equipment. But the actual assassination attempt itself was was pretty amateur. Um, you know, the, these guys, maybe they were doing it on purpose or not, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, they were detected virtually from the minute they arrived in the UK to the minute they left or, or were subsequently on all the CCTV. Um, and of course, they didn't achieve their aim. Sadly, Dawn Sturgis was the only person who died, an innocent civilian, but but Skripal and his daughter um, survived. But it, it was it was very much, I think, Putin, you know, sort of flexing his muscles because, you know, conventionally, the Russians are no match for NATO. Um, and and Putin knows that. But but using sort of asymmetric type weaponry, um, certainly um, they can do. And, and it was a pretty a pretty powerful statement. And, you know, apart from platitudes in the UN and elsewhere, you know, we didn't really do much. Um, <laughs> if You know, it, we then had the Russian Football World Cup. You know, if we were really pissed off about this, we should have withdrawn the the UK football team. But, you know, we didn't do that. We just cracked on and and got on with it. So, yeah, in in the in the strategic world of of international brinkmanship, Putin, you know, is is very much on the top table. And uh, you know, we we I think we appeared weak, and we need to, you know, our politicians need to get a grip, particularly on things like this. You know, we should have done something against Assad and we should have done something more demonstrative when uh, Putin used nervation on the streets of Salisbury. Yeah, I think, uh, again, what you're going back to is like that was that moment as well as if we'd have acted, Russia wouldn't probably not be as embedded in Syria as they are now. Because I think they really came on the scene after that, didn't they? Yeah. Um, so uh, while we're on the subject of Putin... Um, who I've got I've got a love-hate relationship with Putin. I think, obviously, as someone in the Western world, I'm a bit afraid of him. But if I was in Russia, I'd fucking love him. Um, do you have any, any, any kind of, like, favourite political or military history leaders from any kind of period in history? Anyone that like that that you look up to and think, God, I wish this blog was around now? I did have a note from Putin a few years ago. Um, really? Yeah, D- David Noss and I managed to rescue um, 500 orphans from Aleppo back in 2016. And um, uh, and we, David managed to speak to Putin and his crew to organise a ceasefire. Uh, and, and David had said he got a note saying, tell your mate to Bretton Gordon to stop accusing Assad of using chemical weapons. Wow. And I sort of went, I went oh, crikey. Wow. So I, I asked some chums in the intelligence world whether I needed to be worried. And I, the view came back was, no, no, Hamish, there are, there are a lot more people in front of you, so um, no, you, you shouldn't be worried. But you know that's the sort of thing he does. But but going back to to people in history, I don't. Um, I, I'm not sure about dictators and else. I mean, the, the, the thing about dictators and people like Putin is is they don't care. They're not worried about the second and third order consequences. Which and if you're not worried about that, you can basically do what you like. And of course, Putin stayed in power for you know what is it, twenty or twenty five years. I mean, the same with your man in Belarus, who looks like he's getting his his comeuppance. But, you know, f- fundamentally, these people are pretty evil. And, um, you know, one can't 
I, I would prefer to focus on, you know, very apposite with the 75th anniversary of, uh, you know, the end of the war, VJ Day. Um, you know, one of my great heroes is is Phil Marshall Slim mm, and, yeah. um, you know, re- his book, Defeat into Victory. And, you know, all the sort of things that he was saying um, about soldiering is just, you know, it was so true back it for the Forgotten Army and so true during my career. And I'm sure, you know, everybody else's. Um, and uh, so I think I think, yeah, I, I like to think of some of the, you know, the, the great moral leaders rather than the great immoral leaders. Um, but Putin's right up there for sure. Yeah, I was also thinking about Slim um, this weekend, and I like uh, anybody that's listening, go up, go go out and, look, and go go out and look him up. Um, incredible bloke, and I just because I, I always think to myself, God, to have someone like that around now would be. I just don't. I feel like we're lacking that kind of um, that that kind of leadership. Maybe maybe it's just leadership for a bygone era, though. Maybe it doesn't work anymore. Who knows? Um, in these days, he'd probably get accused of having... He'd probably tweet something that he said 20 years ago that would come back and cost him his job. Uh, I mean, everybody seemed to be a big fan of David Petraeus until he sent someone a picture of his dick. So, you know, you can uh, get cut quickly out of these things um, these days. Um, in terms of the book process, that must have... Uh, you've got such so much stuff that's gone into this. How hard was it, one, to organise your, your thoughts um, and to get that all into a book? And two, what um, what was it like um, in terms of, like, emotionally? Did you find it, was it hard or did you find it like it was a release? Or how did that go? A very interesting uh, piece. Uh, and I think I mentioned at the beginning a chap called Damien Lewis um, persuaded me to do it. Uh, and actually... The, the, the actor, Damien Lewis? No, the author. He's a very famous author, writes a lot of... Uh, books about the history of the SAS and, uh, and elsewhere. And he also writes a lot of fiction books. He's, he's really good. People should should um, look him up, some fantastic books. But I, I'd been giving him some technical advice. We He wrote some fiction or helped Bear Grylls write some fictional books, and I, I provided some of the storylines. Um, but he suggested and, and introduced me to his, his agent, who then sort of went, yeah, this is really interesting. I then I then had had help writing the book from a, a chap called James Layton, who's a brilliant wordsmith. So, yeah, over a year or so, we, you know, it, I wrote a lot of the stories down. Um, I, I mean, there, there is there is a lot left out, which, um, mm. you know, the caveat at the beginning uh, of the book really saying, you know, we had to change and leave things out for for, for security reasons. I mean, the last thing I wanted to do was to give any of our adversaries, you know, help in, in sort of this and, and the delisting process took a while, but um, yeah, organizing the thoughts was, was, you know, that, that was interesting. And, um, you know, the, the advice getting on how to lay it out was slightly different to, to what, what I originally thought. And, and actually then when you read it, you sort of think bloody hell did this. Yeah. Did this, sometimes I think did this happen, and I think back. Yeah, it did. It did actually. Um, so that was. And, and whether it's is it a cathartic thing? I um, yeah. I think I think um, I think it. I think it is. It's you know there are a few difficult bits in there. Um, there's one piece where I had to put my Labrador down, oh. who I'd had for 14 years, and. Um, and I sort of think I, at the time I just thought, God, well, you know, why are you, 
getting so emotional. But I took the poor dog to the vet and he was in the back of the car. And it, 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 but his name is Butler. He, he was finished. His legs didn't work. He was, you know, he was on his way out. The, the kindest thing to do was to put him down. But it, to me, it was shocking. I, I sort of, you know, as, as the vet said, give me your paw. And he sort of gave him his paw. And I said, don't, don't you're going to die. And he, he died in my hands. And, and I had to, you know, it was almost worse than seeing, this might sound completely terrible than seeing a human die. And mm. I then had to take myself away. Uh, uh, and my wife, who's a builder, we were building a new house and the, the plot it was on, I, I, I went there for the whole day and dug a hole and I, I was in bits. I just couldn't, it, it was unbelievable. It was almost as a 25 years of, you know, doing all the military and Syrian stuff just sort of came out and I couldn't, you know, it was all around putting a dog down. So I, I think it was, you know, it was quite a, an offloading process, but then again, I sort of, you know, my, you know, I, I speak to my Syrian doctor chums almost daily and they're still in Idlib, you know, they're still fighting the fight every day. And I sort of think, God, bloody hell, you know, you're, these people are, are doing, and I, I think over time it does, it sort of does get to you and then you need to sort of come back to the surface, you know, have a big, you know, suck of breath and, a, you know, get a grip and then go on again. I think you do, you do have a sort of, um, what a, I can't remember, it might have been Slim or somebody else. So you have a bank account, that, you know, you use up and then you, you need to sort of top it up again. Um, but, um, and certainly with the cancer thing, that was, Although, you know, it's, um, you know, I'll die with it, probably not of it. Um, uh, and the, the the heart thing, it, again, I sort of got used to that. But um, it's the the more, I think the, 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 the thing about the book is, is you know, you alluded to it earlier. What, what, are, what are the people, what are my mates going to say? The people who are around at the time and all the rest. Obviously, there are not many who were in Syria, if any at all, but. Um, so I'll be interested to see, and we, you know, in the military, we're not very good at, as you say, you know, the sort of tall poppy syndrome, you know, people, I can just be saying, yeah, okay, what's, what's he doing that for? Um, which is why I've been very clear. It's to me, it's all about Syrians, chemical weapons and, and, and health. So, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not that bothered if, if I get a bit of stick, but if it helps a few people, then that's great. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is because I think this is something that a lot of veterans have a problem with because I think a lot of people join the military because you want to do the right thing. You want to stand up for people who are getting bullied, essentially, is a lot of it. How do you how do you kind of distance yourself or not? Well, not distance yourself. That's not the right term. Obviously, like you said, you still have friends that are in Syria. The stuff is still going on there. It's terrible stuff. How do you disconnect from that to be able to have time with your family to be able to have time at home you know how how, how have you managed to find that balance how do you how, like what is it that stops you kind of you know basically going one way or the other and spending all you know having to cut off completely from it or go in because I, I think that's something that a lot of us have a difficulty with is is you know people are either all in on these things or all out it's very hard to kind of balance the, the two up so i'd love to know how, how you manage that well again that that's that's a great observation it's i you know if you spoke to my wife she'd say no he, he's he's always on it 
um, seven days a week all the time. Um, and it's, I had a particularly bad, when David and I rescued the children from Aleppo, um, there were a number of very high profile celebrities involved who I don't name in the book because they'd sue me and, um, you know, I would, I certainly wouldn't be able to, um, who, who actually, uh, you know, got very cross because there, there was a time when they, they wanted to bring all these kids back to the UK, um, which would have been wrong in every every guise. And and on Christmas Day, no, it was Christmas Eve when David and I had sorted this out and these celebrities were not getting their time, you know, in the media as saving all these children. And one of them rang me up and just, you know, shouted and screamed and effed and blinded, you know, how David and I had ruined their chance to, you know, be shown as heroes. And I just thought, oh, my God, I thought, you wankers. Um, but anyway, because at the end of the day, the children were saved. They stayed in, in Syria where they should be. The ones who were badly injured were sorted out in Turkey. Bringing them to the UK would have been absolute nuts. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, so I, I, I'm i I'm lucky. I've got a great family, um, a great, great marriage and wife who, who, who keeps me grounded. And, you know, if I'm overdoing it, you know, we'll just you know, quietly let me know that that's the case. But it's, it is tricky. I mean, you know, we do, it's very difficult, it, you know, exactly as you said, it's very difficult to stand back and do nothing when you think you can do something. And again, it's the, your point about the bullies, you know, it's, it's very difficult standing back, holding the coats while the others are getting stuck in. And, um, and it should be ever thus. I mean, that's what us military people are about. You, you know, if, if, if you can stand back and do nothing where you could do something, then, you know, that is not that to me, that is not the right thing. I'd much prefer to get stuck in and try and help. And, you know, if it doesn't work, so be it. But it's better to have tried and failed than not have tried at all. That's a, a great, great place to, to leave it. Hamish, thank you so much for today for conversation. I've learned a lot. And I hate to say the word enjoyed, but I've, en- I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, and I really appreciate the, the work that you do. And I appreciate the fact that you've written this book because we need more people talking about it. You know, we need, you know, and we need, we need to get it out there because this stuff is still going on. Um, I, I, th- I think it's, 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 it's just this, this ongoing tragedy that there just doesn't seem to be any end of. And there's never going to be an end to it until people, people are talking about it and people demand of their politicians that something gets fucking done it's just as simple as that so the more people know the better so thank you for thank you for writing this book well thanks very much for giving me the time um to to sort of tell the story and and all the great work that that you do so uh, it's been a great pleasure thank you cheers hamish i'll let everybody know where they can find um where they can find the book are you are you online anywhere is there people they can find you um online do you have a social media presence or yeah i'm on twitter at Hamish DBG. Fantastic. That's a nice, simple one. <laughs> that, that is. Yeah. What, what's your Twitter? Uh, I, 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 at GRJ Books, but I don't really use it because uh, I find Twitter to just be so flipping toxic. Oh, right. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm so on Instagram I, I, as well, the same. 
handle oh fantastic we'll get we'll get you on instagram but i'll tag i'll tag everything up in the show notes so people can click uh click straight through onto that um but hamish thanks so much today i'm looking forward to uh grabbing a copy of the book um well i'm sorry you won't i'll I'll ask them to send you a copy i was but i thought they would have done that but uh no drama such as publishing (laughs) (laughs) there we go well cheers mate thanks for coming on and uh we'll catch you next time cheers yeah we'll do cheers thanks for your time bye-bye Right, guys, thank you for listening to today's podcast. Uh, I know that was a bit heavy at times. I'm not going to lie. I definitely had wet eyes at a few points there. Um, and I did. Um, we, we recorded this the other week. I'm recording the intro a week later. And when I went home that evening, um, really kind of puts your life in check when you see that kind of thing. And you're like, wow, um, gives you a whole different perspective when you're thinking about Syrian kids with their arms and legs missing. They still got a smile on their face. So, Hamish, thank you not only for coming on the podcast, but thank you for the work that you had done and, and that you are doing. I think it's very important work. Um, and we are all grateful for it. I'm sure I'm speaking for everybody when I say that. Um, guys, I want to say thank you to the Royal British Legion. They make it happen. No British Legion, no podcast. End of. Go and give them a follow. Don't make me come find you. Um, the other thing as well I want to say, guys, is the fee. You don't charge for the podcast. But if you guys enjoyed it, how about leaving a review? How about telling a friend? How about making a post on social media? Um, putting the podcast together takes time, takes effort um, from myself, from other people, from, um, you know, there's people out there who are making posts every week. And I want to shout you guys out and say thank you. Like, you guys are making the posts. Really fucking appreciate it. And guess what? When it comes time to do live events and all that kind of stuff, once all this coronavirus stuff is fucking done with, then... Um, there's going to be some, like, if you've been on board helping us, and we're going to be on board with helping you, put it that way. Um, and if you could leave a review, or if you could uh, tell a friend or make a post, not asking too much, is it, guys? It takes two minutes for you to make a post on social media to literally just share what you're listening to and just say, I enjoy this podcast. Boom. That's all we're asking. Not asking for your organs. Not asking for your sexual favors yet. Um, so, you know, scratch our back. We'll scratch yours. Let's keep this a... Keep this a community of helping each other. Uh, and on that note as well, thank you so much for coming back home over, sponsoring today's podcast. All right, you fuckers, I'm out of here. I'll catch you next time. Love you, bye. Yeah. Listen. Shout out, teaser. Told me not to worry, and you wouldn't break my heart You told me you were sorry, and yeah, my whole world fell apart You said it's not my fault, and yeah, I've never done you wrong I'm grinding to a halt, now I can see you're moving on I promised I'd get better, and I told you things would change You keep me to the gutter, yeah, I'll never be the same I've gotta let you go, now live your life and spread your wings And yeah, you put on quite a show, and pulled the puppet strings And are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain, or maybe you should thank me It's your loss and my gain, I'm leaving now forever I won't hang my head in the Shame, but yeah, you've taken me for granted And you should feel ashamed You sold a dream to all of us A dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live And something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet Or hold a newborn But no matter what I do My hands remembering my rifle, yeah Life's hard, I know that Still wouldn't change shit I wouldn't go back, yeah I wouldn't go back Feelings I hold back Memories fade, yeah They go fast, yeah They go fast Good times to come and go Survive the highs and lows Just take a step by step I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go Survive the highs and lows Just take a step by step I guess, yeah, I suppose